Well, last week we left Jeremiah imprisoned in the courtyard of the guards, where the Lord actually took that very terrible time to bless Jeremiah and give him what we now call the Book of Consolation, which is kind of right in the middle of Jeremiah, starting with chapter 30 and ending in chapter 33. And the prophecies that that Jeremiah got at that time were were gentle and loving and full of hope. And um, I want to just look at a couple of excerpts out of Jeremiah 31, uh, verse starting in, in verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then skipping forward to verse 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Those are two of possibly the most famous verses in Jeremiah. And it speaks of a time when every single person will know the Lord to such an extent there will be no need for Bible study. Okay. He says they'll have it written on their hearts. He says... Every single person in the nation will know me. Has that been fulfilled yet? No, not anywhere and certainly not in Israel. Skip down to verse 38. This is just a continuation of that prophecy. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gerib and then turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown, and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east, as far as the corner of the horse gate, will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. I want to, This is where you pull out this little colored map of Jerusalem. This is a tourist map of Jerusalem. I wanted to just point out to you where those boundaries were. The old city is this orange part in the east. All right. And the tower of Hananel is is inside the the old city. It's about where these buildings are up in the upper part. It's right about right about there. Okay. Where Where those buildings are. If you if you. Jeremiah is describing things going in a counterclockwise direction. We don't know where Goreb is. We do know the corner gate is is right. It's kind of hard to see on this map, but it's right about where this little blue spot is. Okay, So it's going from the gate of Hananel to the corner gate, still within these walls, this perimeter. And then it goes out to what it says, Garib. We have no idea where that is. We just know it's out out here somewhere west of the city because he's going in that direction. And we don't know where Goa is, but we know that it's more southwest because he says you turn the corner there and you go down to Goa. But we do know where all the rest of it is because then he says it's going to encompass the whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and that is the Valley of Hinnom. That 
is that detestable place we've talked about, the place the Lord hates, and that's where the worst of the idol worship was. That's where they sacrificed their children, okay, to Molech. And it's, it, is mar- it is marked down here, right down here, you should see Hinnom Valley in this green part. At down south, so we know it's going to. We know there the upper, the northern, and southern boundaries then of this Jerusalem that he's describing, and the next place that he says is the Kidron Valley. Well, the Kidron Valley is a valley that runs just east of the wall of the old city, but not as far east as the Mount of Olives. It's it's in between the city and the Mount of Olives. Right. This this is not topographical, but this kind of sits on a hill and then it goes down to the valley and then goes back up to the Mount of Olives. So we know the north, the south, and the east boundary. We just don't know exactly where the west boundary is. But what is cool about this is the Lord is going to encompass the Hinnom Valley where the worst of the worst of the idol worship took place. And look what the Lord says about it we have to go to um actually to zechariah to find it look at zechariah we're going to go to two places the first place is zechariah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 zechariah is towards the end of the old testament he's one of the quote minor prophets so he's a little bitty book back towards the end He's not, he's not at the very end, but he's pretty close. Zechariah, not Zephaniah, Zechariah. Okay. Malachi, all right, is the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah is the next to the last. All right, got it. So if you go to Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5, he's having a vision, and, and he sees an... Um, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, well, where are you going? And he answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. And then the angel who was speaking to me left. Another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself, meaning the Lord, will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Has that happened yet? Probably not, unless you're taking it figuratively for the Lord defending Jerusalem. You know, And so far, Jerusalem has been subject to quite a few wars, and there has not noticeably been a wall of fire around it with the Lord defending it holistically. I would say probably not. But we're going to look especially a few pages over in chapter 14. Look at verse 10 in chapter 14. This is where Zechariah describes Jerusalem's boundaries exactly the same way that Jeremiah does. He uses a couple of different gates, but listen what he says. The whole land from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem will become like the Arabah, meaning it'll be desolate desert desert but jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the benjamin gate which we don't know quite where that is to the site of the first gate which we don't know where that is to the corner gate which was one of the 
bits that Jeremiah said, we do know where that is. And from the Tower of Hananel, which we know where that is, to the royal wine presses. So he's describing, you know, a perimeter that's similar to what Jeremiah is describing. But all these gates clearly would have been within that old city vicinity. So we can see that what Zephaniah, I mean, Zechariah is seeing is, is the same city that Jeremiah has been predicting. Now let's back up and look at the context of what Zechariah's prophecy came in, because that's going to tell us whether that's a prophecy that has been fulfilled or is yet to be fulfilled. All right. Look at the look at what it where it, it is. Verse one of fourteen. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. Has that happened? No. The first part sounds like when the Babylonians came in and took half of them. It does. The first part did sound like what the Babylonians did when they came in and completely wiped out the city, the people, everything. But it says on that same day, the Mount of Olives is going to get split, okay, completely in two. So part of it's going to fall off to the north and part of it's going to move off to the to the south, and and he says, you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. And then it, it says, um, then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And on that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. But when evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. And that is followed by this description of Jerusalem. Clearly, that happens at the end that happens i think that you know if if you went through revelation with me you'll find that i did a lot of work and 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 kind of show that i i believe that that happens at the battle of armageddon and that that's when christ comes that christ is the one who stands on the mount of olives and saves jerusalem and, and that that is the beginning of the millennial reign. Now, there is difference of opinion among godly scholars, okay? So, as to some people think Christ comes before that, some people think he comes when I, when, when I think he comes. But, but the, the point is that Jeremiah's prophecy is, and scholars do agree that his prophecy is the, the same Jerusalem that Zechariah is predicting. And Zechariah gives us the context to tell us that it happens at the end. Chronologically, 
When were those books written? Same time? Zechariah was a prophet of the exile. So he wrote it while he was exiled in Babylon. Okay. So he was uh, a later, little, just slightly later than Jeremiah. May have been some overlap there. We just know that he was a prophet in the exile. Okay. So it was, for all intents and purposes, the same time period. Jeremiah, too, dreamed about this time. If you stay in uh, Jeremiah 31, but go kind of back up to verse 24, Jeremiah says, this is the end of his little prophecy. It says, people will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flock. The Lord says, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. And at this, Jeremiah says, I awoke and looked around, my sleep had been pleasant to me. You know, which is really, really sweet that that was recorded. So we're to the very end. Jerusalem is going to fall. Jeremiah has one last conversation with King Zedekiah. King Z- the city's been under siege for three years. There's no food. There's no water is scarce. The city walls are going to be breached at any minute. Any minute, and King Zedekiah calls Jeremiah into a secret meeting. And Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, I'm going to ask you something. Well, Jeremiah knows what he's going to ask. is the same thing Zedekiah asks every time they have this meeting. Zedekiah wants to know, what does the Lord say? And then he never does it, you know. He never believes it. But he, he says, King Zedekiah knows Jeremiah doesn't want to tell him, and so he says, just don't hide anything from me. We're in chapter, I'm sorry, we're in chapter 38, starting in verse 14. And so Jeremiah says, yeah, right. If I tell you what the Lord says, you're just going to hand me over to be killed. And Zedekiah says, oh, no, I promise. Cross my heart. I will not hand you over to be killed. Just tell me the truth. And so Jeremiah says, okay, here's what the Lord says for about the 10th time he's told him. But here's what the Lord says. If you surrender to the Babylonians, you will be spared and the city will be spared. It will not be burned. But if you don't surrender to the Babylonians, they are going to sack the city. They will burn it. And furthermore, you will be captured. And your wives and your children are going to be brought out to the Babylonians. And Zedekiah says, but I can't surrender because all those Jews that have been defecting and going over to the Babylonians like you've been telling them to, Jeremiah, I'm afraid that when Nebuchadnezzar takes the city, he's going to hand me over to them and they're going to, quote, mistreat me. (laughs) What a coward, right? But he was scared. And so he said, I can't surrender. And Jeremiah says, no, don't worry about that. The Lord says, trust him and he will protect you. You will not be handed over. If you surrender to the Babylonians, all will be well. Well, Zedekiah, of course, needs to think about this. So he says, okay, don't let anybody know what that we had this conversation or what it was about. And if somebody sees you leave and asks you what you were talking to me, 
about to me, just tell them you were, you know, begging me not to put you back in the prison. And so Jeremiah says, okay. And that's what Jeremiah did. And Jeremiah, from that day forward, remained in, imprisoned in the courtyard of the guard. And we find out in a, a, a little bit later that he actually had chains on his wrists. So he was in a very miserable existence, but he was alive. So we've come to the end of Jerusalem, and here's how Second Chronicles kind of sums up the situation. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers, the prophets, again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. This is where we are. 2 Kings 25.3 tells us that by the ninth day of the fourth month of that final year, the famine in the city had become so severe, there was no food for the people to eat, and the people were too weak to resist any longer. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17. The Lord, this, this occurred, this verse occurred on July 18th, 586 BC, middle of the summer. The Lord brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary of the temple and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. The Bible account in the next few verses corresponds exactly to that given by Josephus, that historian we talked about last time. But Josephus gives us a little more detail because we want to find out. Remember, Josephus had told us that Jeremiah had prophesied that King Zedekiah would be carried off to Babylon, remember? But Ezekiel had prophesied that, that Zedekiah would never see Babylon. And we want to know what happened because we don't have Ezekiel's prophecy. And so we have to turn to Josephus to see what happened. Here's what he said. When Zedekiah saw that all was lost, he took his wives and children, officers and friends, and fled out of Jerusalem by night. At daybreak, however, the Babylonians overtook the fugitives near Jericho, which is just east of Jerusalem. They brought Zedekiah and his family before Nebuchadnezzar. And he denounced Zedekiah as a violator of treaties and an irreverent, ungrateful wretch for having broken his pledge given when Nebuchadnezzar had made him king. And he ordered Zedekiah's sons to be executed while he watched. And then his eyes were put out. And he was bound and taken to Babylon. Thus the prophecies of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel were fulfilled. Since the king of Judah was brought captive to Babylon, yet he did not see that city. You have to trust the Lord. He tells you the truth. And if you have conflicting 
Bible verses, conflicting prophecies. You just have to put it up there and say, Lord, you're the one I trust in. And I cling to you. That brings me to a question that I had just a second. It was yeah. a place to interject. I wrote it down so we could talk about it later. But <clears throat> you said in there, it said that um, all in the nation would know him and they would, word, word would be written on their heart. All in what about in Revelation where it talks about those that will <clears throat> still deny him in the very end? Those kind of. Yeah. Things. Okay. The question is a minute ago, I was talking about how Jeremiah predicted, prophesied that. At this time, everyone would know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest, that the law would be written on their heart and that, that, that we would not need to have Bible studies anymore. And yet in Revelation, there's quite a bit of talk about people who don't know the Lord, right? And, and whole nations that don't know the Lord. How can that be? And the, the difference is that is, is, in Zechariah in that timing that we were just talking about because when the day of the Lord comes and Jerusalem is threatened by all of the nations that come from the whole world that come against her in the battle of Armageddon and the Lord himself comes to save her and stands on the Mount of Olives at its split that is when Jesus becomes king and everybody knows he is king that was part of what we read in Zechariah that everybody will know I am the Lord and what my name is and that's when the millennial kingdom starts and that's when all the nations gather the Jews from wherever they are and bring them back to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is is rebuilt it's built in these parameters as described in Jeremiah and Zechariah and the Lord reigns literally for a thousand years. And it's during that time that Satan has been bound and everybody knows the Lord. Okay. Um, I know that that is somewhat different than the way John taught it on Sunday. And like I said, there can be scholarly differences as to the sequence of events. So, um, I, I, um, he sees the gathering, regathering of the Jews as having already begun because of the establishment of the nation of Israel. And obviously, Israel had to be established as a nation again in order for the events of the Great Tribulation to happen because it had to exist as a nation for those prophecies to happen. So I, I think we're talking, um, he's applying some of these these Bible verses that I think clearly refer to the millennial kingdom, okay, to the current, you know, 1948 events. He and I have a difference of opinion on that, but in the end, it doesn't matter. We would agree on the big, the big events. Okay. I kind of think that until he comes, it's kind of unknown because there are so many different theories. It's like, we're not going to really know for sure. That's right. We won't know for sure, and the, and and therefore it must not be that important that we know all the details. All right, because the people who might think that this is not the beginning of the millennial kingdom, it's not Christ coming at that point, will say that it's the Lord God the Father, you know, standing there on the Mount of Olives. So there is there is room for interpretation. I came to my conclusions based on my own research, but. 
But in the end, we do know for a fact the Jews will be all gathered, and that has not happened yet. All right. They have started to be regathered. Did that answer your question? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I get off. Um, so then, after um, Zedekiah was dealt with, in 2 Kings twenty five twenty two, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, appointed Gedaliah to be governor over the people he had left behind in Judah, which were the dead poorest of the poor. In fact, at the very, very end of Jeremiah in chapter 52, he lists that only 832 people were carried off to Babylon at this point. That's how, I mean, that gives you a feel for how few people were there to be carried off. All right. Um, And he left just a remnant of really poor serfs to just just the bare minimum to keep the land from going back wild. And he appointed Gedaliah, not king, but governor. Zedekiah was the last king of Jerusalem. So Gedaliah was kind of a good old boy. But Nebuchadnezzar, before he left and went back to Babylon, gave special instructions about what to do with Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah had clearly been counseling people to submit to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was well aware of Jeremiah's word because these Jews were defecting and going over to Babylon during these the three-year siege. So he told Nebuzaradan, another Nebu, they liked that prefix on their names, but at any rate, he's the, the, the captain of the guard for Nebuchadnezzar. So he said, take Take Jeremiah and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So in Jeremiah um, chapter 40, verse 2, when the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, the Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place, and now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. Which implies that Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of his guard had a knowledge of the Lord, which we find corollary for that in the book of Daniel, right? So clearly this had to have happened after Daniel has interpreted the dreams for Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And Nebuchadnezzar has come to know the Lord. Uh, Isn't that interesting? And so the captain of the guard says to Jeremiah, But today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people. Or go anywhere else you please. And then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. This is one of those cases where I think you have to kind of read between the lines here. And it reminded me a lot of conversations that I've had or witnessed at the very most senior level of big corporations here in the United States. And the way these conversations will go is if the CEO, for example wants you to do something, he will often put it to you, especially if it's something difficult, um, 
questionable or or difficult for you personally for whatever reason, he will often call you in and give you a couple of choices and make them sound like choices, all right? But somehow, just like this commander of this guard did, he will make a suggestion that lets you know which of those choices he wants you to take. It's like an iron hand in a velvet glove. It's really a command. It's stated like a choice, but it's not really a choice. And people like Jeremiah, who have operated at the upper echelon of the political world, would know that. And so Jeremiah, I believe, knew that the commander of the guard was telling him, you are going to be better off staying here under Gedaliah than coming with me to Babylon. So, Jeremiah, it says in verse 6, went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Jerusalem has been razed to the ground. There is no Jerusalem anymore at all, nothing. So they moved the capital just a few miles south to Mizpah, which is, if you know where Bethlehem is, it's just a few miles from Bethlehem. And Jeremiah stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. Now I'm going to get out my um, big map for you. <laughs> big map. And talk to you just a little bit about what's going on here. Because what happened was during this three-year siege, Jerusalem is, is up here, okay, right up here. And during the siege, many of the fighting families, the fighting men, the captains, the, the guys who had 10 or 100 men <laughs> under them, okay, took their units of troops and fled the area. They hid in the surrounding hills in order to preserve some kind of military force because they could see, literally, the writing on the wall that Jerusalem was going to fall. So they fled out. And these men, the Bible says, um, in, in this exact part where we're reading, were arrogant men. It calls them arrogant men. These captains were arrogant and they believed that they weren't beaten yet. And many of them had fled across the Jordan River to Ammon, or Ammon, as I've been calling it all along, where the Ammonites lived. Now, the king, there was a king still in Ammon. That's not part of Judah, okay? That's part of what we would now call Jordan, right? It was the Ammonites back then. And you've got the Moabites down here in the south. You've got a lot of kingdoms where these people had, had um, fled to. So we're looking at verse 7. We're still in chapter 40. When all the army officers and their men heard Nebuchadnezzar had appointed Gedaliah as governor over the land, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And I want you to particularly listen to these names, Ishmael, Johanan. Okay, there were several others, but those two are going to figure in a little bit later. Um, Jonathan, Sariah, there were many others, and their men. But Ishmael and Johanan are the two I want you to remember. Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay at Mizpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. 
but you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and oil, and put them in your storage jars and live in the towns you have taken over. He said, the fighting's over. You need to just submit to the Babylonians, and there's plenty here for us to farm, become farmers. Well, when all the Jews that were in Moab and Ammon and Edom all around, you know, that area, those other kingdoms and the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah from all the countries where they had been scattered. And they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Because remember, this happened in July. So it's getting towards the end of summer. They're ready to, to start harvesting. Now, the Ammonites had always been enemies of Judah. And the king of Ammon saw his opportunity. And he got a hold of one of those arrogant men, the one that I told you to remember, Ishmael. And he convinced Ishmael to assassinate Gedaliah. He convinced Ishmael that with his help and the help of these other kingdoms, they could probably stand up to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, how arrogant would you have to be at this point to believe that? But Ishmael believed him. Well, Johanan heard about it. Johanan was one of the other arrogant men. He heard about it and he warned Gedaliah. He said, don't you know the king of the Ammonites has sent Ishmael to take your life? But Gedaliah did not believe him. Josephus says, Gedaliah was too good-natured to believe anyone would want to assassinate him. <laughs> Verse 15. Then Johanan came privately to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said, Listen, this is a big deal. Let me go kill Ishmael before he kills you. And Gedaliah says, No, no, don't do such a thing. Don't even talk about such a thing. Just go, go farm. You know, this is, it'll all blow over. So we're up to chapter 41, verse 1. Shortly thereafter, Ishmael, who was of royal blood and had been one of the king's officers, came with ten men to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And while they were eating together there, Josephus says, Gedaliah drank so much he got drunk and fell asleep. Ishmael and the ten men who were with him got up and struck down Gedaliah with the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. And Ishmael also killed all the Jews who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. And then, that because he killed absolutely everybody in that room, he was able to keep it a secret, the assassination a secret for a little while. And as people would come in, he would kill them. It was just awful. It was awful. Finally, of course... He, he came out, he made it public that, that he, Ishmael was now in charge, and he took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters along with all the others who were left there. Ishmael took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. So Ishmael is heading east with the people that he's got captive, including Jeremiah and Baruch. The people are absolutely frantic. They are not arrogant. They know Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and completely squash them, right? I mean, I mean, who wouldn't know that? So they start talking among themselves. What can we? We are not going to 
Ammon. Okay, we are, we're definitely not heading east. We're going to get as far away from Nebuchadnezzar as we can. We do not believe the king of the Ammonites can, can or will defend us. They're always been our enemies. We need to go to Egypt. That's our next closest ally who has any strength at all. Well, there's this big faction, but a lot of the people didn't want to do that. So they have this argument, and who do they go to? Jeremiah. And they say, tell us what the Lord says to do, Jeremiah. And no matter what it is, we will do it. We promise. We will do whatever the Lord says to do. And so Jeremiah says, okay. And he goes and he asks the Lord. Verse 7. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together all the army officers and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. Quote, If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I am grieved over the disaster I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord. For I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. However, if you say we will not stay in this land, and if you say, no, we will go live in Egypt where we will not see war or be hungry for bread, This is what the Lord says. If you are determined to go to Egypt and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there. The famine you dread will follow you into Egypt and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. And he goes on to tell them, if you don't want to know, Don't ask, because now you must obey the Lord. You have no excuse. If you hadn't asked, you could have gone to Egypt. But now that you asked and you know what the Lord said, you must stay here. You must trust that the Lord will defend you against the king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. What do you think they picked? They picked Egypt. They picked Egypt. Jeremiah 43, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished telling the people all the words of the Lord their God, everything the Lord had sent him to tell him, Azariah and Johanan, that same arrogant guy, all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You're lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt and settle there. It's Baruch. Baruch is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. So all the people disobeyed the Lord and they all went to Egypt taking along with them Jeremiah and Baruch. Was Jeremiah forced to go? I I think he either he was forced to go or the Lord must have instructed him to go. All right. He definitely went. But certainly, even after he went, the Lord continued to use him. He continued to prophesy to this pathetic remnant of stiff-necked people. Verse 7. So they entered Egypt in disobedience to the Lord and went as far as Taphanes, 
which is, let me show you on the big map where that is. It's here in Egypt, and it's right up here, okay? It's about the first city you get to when you get into Egypt back then, okay? It's right up in the Delta, and it literally was the closest city to them, okay? It's the closest big city. So that's where they headed. In Tephanes, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. While the Jews are watching, take some of the large stones with you and bury them in clay in the brick pavement at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tephanes. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. He will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword for those destined for the sword. He will set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive. As a shepherd wraps his garment around him, so will he wrap Egypt around himself and depart unscathed. Well... We're going to see what happens, whether it happens like the Lord says or not. But meanwhile, this pathetic remnant of Jews in Egypt went right back to idol worship. They started offering oblations and loaves to what they called the queen of heaven. The women would do that, but the men would know that their wives were doing that. And... Um, So the Lord said, this will be a sign to you that I will punish you in this place, declares the Lord. uh, This is in Jeremiah 44, 29. This will be the sign so that you will know my threats of harm against you will surely stand. I am going to hand Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, over to his enemies who seek his life, just as I handed Zedekiah, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the enemy who is seeking his life. Remember Pharaoh Hophra? He's figured in uh, in some of our classes. Last time, he was the Pharaoh who marched out from Egypt in support of Zedekiah, drawing Nebuchadnezzar away from the siege of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar chased him back to Egypt and then came back and destroyed Jerusalem. Okay, This same Pharaoh Hophra is still Pharaoh. This is all in the same few years. We're just talking a couple of years later. So what happened to Pharaoh Hophra? Well, here's what Wikipedia says. It, it says that, yes, indeed, he did march out in 588 B.C. in support of Judah and was rebuffed by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, his unsuccessful attempt to intervene in the politics of the kingdom of Judah was followed by a mutiny of soldiers from the strategically important Aswan garrison. It is not cool to lose battles if you're the Pharaoh. Okay? So after he got repelled by Nebuchadnezzar, he had a mutiny on his hands. He was able to contain the mutiny, and he later had to fight off the Greeks who were trying to invade his country. He was completely mauled by the Greeks. The Greeks totally won that battle. So here's two major defeats right in a row. 
And in fact, there is a great deal of archaeological evidence of Greek influence in Egypt at this time, because there was a great Greek influx, an influx of the Greek culture at that point. So when the defeated army of Pharaoh Hophras came back from the, the Greek campaign with their tail between their legs, the indigenous Egyptians, the native-born the, the, the native real Egyptians that were in his army, started fighting against the mercenaries that were in his army who had been hired as soldiers, and a civil war erupted. The, the Egyptian, Hafer has now sustained two major defeats. His army has split into two factions that are warring. So the Egyptians think back and they say, well, we had a really great general named Amasis who was a terrific general and won a really big battle under Hafra's father. And we'll make him Pharaoh because Hafra is obviously a total loser. And so Amasis set himself up as Pharaoh at this time. And they actually had two pharaohs for a period of time. And and this was about 570 BC. Okay. So this is what, 12 or 14 years after the fall of, do I have, am I counting backwards right? I, I get it. Anyway, Jerusalem fell at 586 and this is at 570. So 16 years. So um, it, they've been, the Jews have been there for about 16 years and Hophra flees Egypt because Amasis has become more powerful. Well, Hophra flees in the direction of Babylon. Isn't that a coincidence? And about 567 BC, he comes back with Babylonian aid to fight Amasis. Amasis is defeated, but Nebuchadnezzar retains him as Pharaoh. And Hophra somehow, like, disappears during this time. We're not sure exactly what happened to him, whether he was killed in battle or by other nefarious means. But right about this time, he's killed. So um, Amasis is now a puppet pharaoh. And guess who spread his canopy there in Egypt, making all these rules? Nebuchadnezzar. It happened exactly like the Lord said to Jeremiah. So what happened to Nebuchadnezzar after that? You want to know? You know there's no way the Lord's going to let the destroyer of his beloved people go unpunished. And in fact, the Lord had given Jeremiah extensive prophecies and detailed prophecies about the destiny of Babylon shortly after Zedekiah was taken into exile. You can find those in Jeremiah 50 and 51. And here's just a few excerpts. Jeremiah 50 verse 2. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured. Bel, which was one of their main idols, will be put to shame. Marduk, another one of their idols, will be filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. No one will live in it. Both men and animals will flee away. Skip down to verse 9. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her, and from the north she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty-handed. 
so Babylonia will be plundered, and all who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. 51.11, sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the kings of the Medes because his purpose is to destroy Babylon. The Lord will take vengeance, vengeance for his temple. Well, kings of the Medes, do we remember where the Medes were? We ran into them a little bit before. Here's Babylon down here. You know where the Medes are? Mm, Up north. All this part up here. Okay. Babylon is here. The Medes are are here in these mountains. These prophecies go on. And in chapters 50 and 51, in great and gory detail about how Babylon will be punished because she gloated over the destruction of the temple of the Lord and of God's people. And at the end of the prophecy, this is what Jeremiah did. This is at the very end, chapter 51, verse 59. This is the message Jeremiah gave to the staff officer Sariah when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. So this happened way back, okay, four four years into Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah reigned, I think, 11 years. So that was seven, this was 10 years ago, okay, 10 years before this, Jeremiah wrote this prophecy down on a scroll and carried it to Babylon. And here's what the prophecy said. When you, he wrote down everything in chapters 50 and 51 about the disasters that would come to Babylon. And he said to Sariah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. Then say, O Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither man nor animal will live in it. It will be desolate forever. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates and then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring upon her and her people will fall. The words of Jeremiah end here in that particular prophecy. Well, it happened exactly that way. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom did not last much longer than the events that we've talked about tonight. He died just five years after he set up his throne in Egypt over Jeremiah's stones. And a mere 25 years after that, Babylon was conquered by the combined kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians under King Cyrus. Exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied. He said combined kingdoms from the north, including the Medes. That's what happened. It is a historical fact, well documented. Wikipedia, my other favorite extra biblical source besides Josephus, says Babylon was probably the largest city in the world at this time and may have been the first city to reach a population of over 200,000 people. In 141 BC, the events we are talking about took place in, you know, the 560s, 550s, around in there, BC, right? Okay. Well, about 400 years later, in 141 BC, when the Parthian Empire took over the region, Babylon was in complete desolation and obscurity. In 1983, Saddam Hussein started rebuilding the city on top of the old ruins. Because of this, artifacts and other finds may well be under his construction now. 
investing in both restoration and new construction. He inscribed his name on many of the bricks in imitation of Nebuchadnezzar. One frequent inscription reads, This was built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. This recalls the ziggurat at Ur, where each individual brick was stamped with Ur-Namu, king of Ur, who built the temple of Nana. He also installed a huge portrait of himself and Nebuchadnezzar at the entrance to the ruins and shored up the processional way, which is a fabulous long walkway into the city that was decorated with mosaics of lions, that we actually have those mosaics. You can see them in several um, uh, museums around the world, one of them being the British Museum. And he named, uh, he, where was I? He installed a huge portrait of himself and Nebuchadnezzar at the entrance to the ruins and shored up processional way a large boulevard of ancient stones and the Lion of Babylon, a black rock sculpture about 2,600 years old. When the Gulf War ended, Saddam wanted to build a modern palace also over some old ruins, and it was made in the pyramidal style of a Sumerian ziggurat. He named it Saddam Hill. In 2003... He was ready to begin the construction of a cable car line over Babylon when the invasion began and halted the project. An article published in April 2006 states that UN officials and Iraqi leaders have plans for restoring Babylon, making it into a cultural center. As of May 2009, the provincial government of Babel, which is what Babylon was named after as in Tower of Babel, okay, you recognize that? has reopened the site to tourism. And in your notes, I gave you a picture of, of our Marines standing in front of what Babylon looks like today. This is a picture taken by one of those Marines. Well, Babylon is referred to extensively in Revelation as the center of world commerce during the Great Tribulation. So there's two possibilities Either the Babylon of the Great Tribulation is another city that is represented, its evil is represented by the being called Babylon, okay? I mean, a lot of people think it's Rome, a lot of people think it's New York City, you know, it's, it's whatever, okay? The other option would be that Babylon actually does get rebuilt, it, in the Great Tribulation and becomes, it certainly is the capital of the Antichrist. We know that whatever the name of the city is, it is the capital of the Antichrist. Um, but be assured that whether it's named Babylon and is in the site of the ancient Babylon or whether it's another city, its power will be fleeting. Fleeting. All right. It will govern the world for a very short, short time. And then it will be utterly destroyed. We are promised in Revelation that its destruction will be so sudden and so severe that ships will still be out to sea coming to her and they will mourn her loss because they will see the smoke rising. Okay. And they will have no place to deliver their goods. What happened to the Jews? Well, we know from Bible accounts of Ezra and Nehemiah that during the reign of King Cyrus, this king that defeated Nebuchadnezzar, 
after the set or Nebuchadnezzar defeated Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was dead. After the 70 years decreed by the Lord had passed, the king did allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Second Chronicles 36 verse 21 says the land, this would be the land in Israel, enjoyed its Sabbath rests for those 70 years. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that return after 70 years is recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's when the temple of Zerubbabel was built. That ultimately was enlarged, became the temple of Herod. That is the one that was destroyed shortly after Christ's Christ's crucifixion. And there never has been a temple since. Just as Jeremiah had prophesied, the Lord brought a remnant back, and he forgave them. Jeremiah 50, verse 20. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none, and for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. And we're to the end. What happened to Jeremiah? Well, in the end, we don't know what happened to Jeremiah. There's lots of theories, but no facts. One thing we know, though, is that the Lord's hand was on on him before he was born. The Lord's hand was on him during his entire life. The Lord's hand was on him even in Egypt. And I know that the Lord's hand was on him in death. He may have died at the hands of the Jews in Egypt. There is a tradition that he was stoned to death by them. There's lots of other traditions that he escaped from Egypt, that he became a missionary. None of them supported by any facts whatsoever. We simply don't know what happened to Jeremiah. But we do know he served the Lord faithfully, regardless of the price, and His life is still making a difference 2,500 years later. The end.